I guess not too many people uh, use voicemail anymore. Everybody texts, you know, it seems. Um, When voicemail was relatively a new thing, I had a friend who left a message like this. He said, um, can't take your call right now. Leave your information and I'll call you back at my earliest convenience. And I don't think that uh, my friend meant to uh, indicate what that kind of sounds like, but what it sounds like when you say that is, hello, you're not very important. I'll get back to you when it's convenient for me to do so. Now, the Bible tells us that we were created for encounter and for relationship with one another. God is relational. He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, by his very nature, is relational. And relationship for us is not a luxury. Uh, We were created in the image of God for relationship with God and with one another. The catastrophe that theologians call the fall was not about breaking rules or eating apples. It was about something far deeper. It was the loss of relationship, the separation and isolation and the fleeing from real encounter. You know, we read in uh, Genesis chapter 2, Uh, After the creation of human beings, the man and woman, we read there that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And I I hope that you understand when you read that, that that's not merely speaking of merely their physical condition. It's speaking of their spiritual condition. That they had nothing to hide from one another, nothing to fear from one another. They were open before one another. but in their broken relationship with God, and it was nothing less than that. It meant now for them a life of hiding, of self-protection, of isolation, of covering up from one another and from God. John's Gospel tells us that the Son of God came into the world not to condemn the world. He could have done that at a distance. He came into the world to save the world. But what does that mean, to be saved? In the Bible, it means to be restored from a place of alienation and separation and isolation to a place of relationship and encounter and peace. And that's why the Son of God came. To clear away the impediment that stood between ourselves and God. And to corner us into genuine, authentic encounter with God. I want to read to you today from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And Father, as we look today, as we consider the zeal of Jesus for your house and see in him a, a peaked ire, help us to understand what peaks your ire and to turn from it and, and to embrace you, God, to really know you in the depths of our being and to not hide from you. For you have promised us that you will freely forgive and receive us in Christ. Amen. You know, I sometimes uh, will hear people contrast Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. Have you ever heard that? Oh, well, that, you know, that was the God of the Old Testament. I, I want to remind you, going back to John chapter 1, that John opens his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word, John tells us, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in saying that, in beginning with those words in the beginning that echo the book of Genesis, in telling us that this one was with God and was God, in telling us that all things were made through him and apart from him, nothing that came into being has been made, what John is clearly telling us is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And if he seems different to us than the God of the Old Testament, it indicates just how profoundly we have misunderstood God and how deeply broken the relationship was. I've heard people, you know, say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. And by that they mean he has established these arbitrary rules and then he just waits for somebody to violate them so that he can crush the life out of them and in contrast to that we're told jesus represents the god of love well he certainly does represent the god of love you read through the gospel accounts and what predominantly marks the life of jesus we see in matthew chapter 11 that he's accused rightly of being a friend of sinners. We're told on several occasions that as he looked at the brokenness of 
people, he was moved to compassion. And his whole life was a study in the dictum that he gave us, love your enemies. If you want to see the character of the God of the Old Testament, it is revealed in Jesus Christ. And in the Gospels, you know, it's interesting, in the Gospels we seldom see the ire of Jesus peaked. But in John chapter 2, we read of such an instance. Um, How angry do you need to be? I want you to think about this. How angry would you need to be to run around with a flail sending animals scurrying and flipping tables over? I read... I read one commentator, I can, I can you know, kind of hear him say, well, now, uh, I know no one who reads this should think that Jesus was upset. That's what he said. No one who reads this should think that Jesus was upset here. Anybody who says that doesn't know anything about agrarian life. Why, uh, you would need something like a cord whip if you were going to hurt a bunch of animals. So, so nobody should think that Jesus is upset here. Did I miss something? Or did he? Because it doesn't just say that he drove out animals with a cord whip. It said he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I got to tell you that if you had a table set up for whatever the purpose might be, you know, you're you're, you're changing money, you know, maybe you're doing an exchange there, uh, or you're passing out political literature and taking donations, or you're selling cookies and iced tea for the bake sale, and I walk up to your table, and I knock the money box off, and I turn your table over, you're not going to go, gee, I wonder if he's upset. And Jesus' ire is clearly peaked here. What is it about this scene that so peaks the ire of Jesus? You know, if Jesus responds here, is indicative to the character of God, I'd like to suggest to you that God's ire is peaked when convenience drives our traditions and distracts us from real encounter with God. And you know, I've mentioned um, tradition there, and I just want to start by asking a question here, and that is, is, is tradition a bad thing? Because in some evangelical churches, tradition is spoken of as though it were the cardinal sin or the unpardonable sin. So we have to first answer the question, what is tradition? A tradition is something that we receive from an authoritative source, and uh, it's passed down substantially unchanged. Right? And there are all kinds of traditions that you might think of. There are family traditions, something that you know you receive from grandpa and that the family continues in that tradition, or natural tra- uh, national traditions. And there are also religious traditions. In the Bible, tradition itself is not a bad thing. In fact, in some places, it's commended in the Bible. In 2 Chronicles 35.25, we read, Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel. 
Some traditions came from apostolic practice in the church or from the letters of the apostles. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, he says, now we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Even merely human tradition is not a bad thing. Every church has traditions and stands within a tradition. We stand within the Reformed tradition. There are churches that stand in the Lutheran tradition and the Anglican tradition and the Baptist tradition. If you look carefully at the Bible, particularly the New Testament, in its condemnation of tradition, you'll see that the tradition that is condemned is tradition that is driven by convenience that keeps us from real encounter with God or with others under the banner of religion. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, Jesus, these are all from Matthew 7. Jesus is addressing the same situation. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, neglecting the commandments of God, you hold on to the traditions of men. You set aside the command of God to keep your own tradition. You nullify the word of God by the traditions you have handed down. What was the tradition that Jesus was addressing there? Well, it was uh, this tradition that they called Korban. You can read about it in Mark 7. Uh, that, that is a uh, tradition of dedication. And what they did is they took, uh, they took uh, some money, whatever the sum of money was, and they dedicated it to God. But look, here's the funny thing about that tradition, the way that it shaped up. It was a spiritual dedication to God. I could take the money and do anything I want with it, but it's spiritually dedicated to God. And what Jesus is particularly concerned about is that um, you come to a place where mom and dad, who cared for you your whole life, are in need, And they were saying, oh, you know what? Uh, Sorry, mom and dad. Anything that I could have given to you, it's been dedicated. It's been dedicated to God. Some of the things that surrounded the Passover had become a tradition of convenience. The Passover, of course, is the celebration commemorating God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. You could read about that this afternoon if you want to in uh, Exodus chapter 12 and in Numbers 9. And uh, if any of you have any Jewish friends who celebrate the Seder, if you've ever been to a Seder dinner, um, you know that there are are lots of traditions surrounding the Passover that have uh, risen, that have arisen, that, uh, that, that don't necessarily come from the Bible or just kind of tangentially related to the Bible. They're not necessarily bad. So what was the problem here? Well, you know, historians tell us that, that, that at the time of the New Testament, uh, Jews had been dispersed all over the Mediterranean. 
but they would, if they could, they would go back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, but not all the Jews now were working uh, in an agrarian kind of situation. They weren't all shepherds. Um, and, and so they didn't all have animals to bring with them. And even if they did, it would be difficult to bring animals for sacrifice from a distance. And, and so what they would do is they would purchase animals once they got into Jerusalem. They'd, they'd purchase the lambs for the Passover. So far, so good. Eventually... Uh, merchants started setting up outside the city to the east of the Kidron Valley, right? Because people are coming for the Passover. And, um, you know, it's kind of like if you work downtown that there'll be food trucks places, right? Because they, they go to where the people are going to be. So rather than having to arrive and go through the city to find a market, we've got an area here. Problem is that the Kidron Valley is to the east of Jerusalem, and hardly anybody comes to Jerusalem from the east. Um, most of them, even if they're coming across the Mediterranean, will land in ports in the north and uh, come down south. Some will come up from the south. So eventually what ended up happening was that the markets just got moved right into the outer courts of the temple. That's where they are all going anyway. A- and there was another issue. Um, it was at the Passover that the priests collected the, the temple tax, the tax for the upkeep and the maintenance of the temple. Now, the only uh, coinage, historians tell us, the only coinage that was accepted for that tax was the coinage from Tyre because it was unusually pure silver. And so people would travel uh, from around the Mediterranean with the coinage common in their reason, and then they would exchange it for Tyrian coins to pay the temple tax. So far, so good. For convenience sake, the money changers set up right next to the animal market in the temple courts. And and it's that whole scene that piques the ire of Jesus. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and to those who sold doves, he said, "Uh, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Why is Jesus so upset? Well, it's not merely because what they're doing is crass and unseemly, and it is crass and unseemly. But it's that people are engaging in what's crass and unseemly because it's simply convenient. And when convenience becomes our controlling consideration, we'll miss encountering God. God's ire is piqued when convenience drives our traditions because it distracts us from real encounter with God. And so we're told of Jesus making this whip of cords, driving the animals from the temple, turning over the tables of the 
money changers. And we read in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What's the house here? What's God's house? Is it the temple? Is it Herod's temple? Herod had set to rebuilding the ruined temple when he came to power. 46 years into it, it was still not finished. In fact, though it was usable, though they could use it, it wasn't finished and it wouldn't be finished on the day that it was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And this temple was glorious. It was glorious. Greater than Solomon's original. For Jesus, I think that house of God meant something different and more than Herod's temple. In chapter 4, we'll see Jesus tell a woman at a well in Samaria that a time was coming and now was when the where of worship wouldn't matter. It won't matter whether you worship in Jerusalem or Samaria. What's God's house? You are. You are. The writer to the Hebrew says, but Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Zeal for your house will consume me. And and you know, the question for Jesus in his zeal for you was never, what's quite convenient for me? You can have no real relationship not with God and not with anyone else, if the controlling question is what is convenient for me. It's important to accurately assess the problem here. The problem was not providing lambs or animals for sacrifice in Jerusalem. That wasn't the problem. The problem was not in having a tradition of a particular currency for the temple tax that was not the problem the problem was can can you picture what it looked like the problem was that the whole atmosphere encouraged a crass convenience that is incompatible with really encountering god god's ire is peaked when convenience drives our traditions because it distracts us from real encounter with God. And to confront us with an encounter with God is the reason that Jesus came. We do well, you know, each of us, 
to examine our spiritual habits and our Sunday traditions. I say that because after a time, your Sundays start to look the same, what you do on Sunday morning, right? You get up, and what, what does your day look like? Those habits become your tradition. What habits have you developed that have become your tradition? And what are those traditions based on? Is it on convenience? Well, let me ask you another way. Do you encounter God on Sunday morning? At church? In your families? In your prayer time? In fellowship with one another? Do you encounter God? I'm not asking you if you do religious things on Sunday or things that have become acceptable to the evangelical world. I'm asking you if you encounter God. And if the answer is no, what's keeping you from him? Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. He's compassionate and loving. And because he is, he came to press us into encounter with God. His ire is peaked when convenience drives our traditions because it distracts us from real encounter with God. Father, we uh, pause and bow in your presence. And uh, Lord, I'd um, ask that you would help us to examine our hearts, to look at our practices, at those things which have become our traditions, and to ask ourselves, what, what, what is it that prompts those? Is it merely our convenience? Because when convenience is the controlling factor, we can really have no real, no deep, no naked relationship. So help us to examine our hearts, to deliver us from distractions, to change our practices, if that need be. And, uh, Father, to uh, reach that end and goal for which Jesus came, that we might really know you, encounter you, know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And we'll give you praise. Amen.